So there's an interesting thing that often happens when you're trying to sort of a stake your claim in a particular space or industry or field or domain. And at the same time, you come from a long lineage or history or family that has already become somewhat legendary in that same space. It gives you certain opportunities because you're around so much of their genius as you're coming up and exposed to so much so early in life. And at the same time, it also brings a whole new set of experiences, expectations, and reactions from other people around you that you have to grapple with. That in some way has been the experience of my guest today, Madison McFerrin. The last name McFerrin, you probably know because her dad is legendary Bobby McFerrin and her grandfather was actually an opera singer who sang at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. So when we sat down at 27 years old, fairly young in her career, yet making a really astonishing sort of step into that world of music, we had a really interesting conversation about where she came from, her influences, growing up in a profoundly musical and well-known family, and how she kind of navigated that, found her way, and continues to really explore What is it that she wants to be doing? What is the voice, the impact, the message, the artistry that she wants to bring to the world as she creates and defines and maps her own profession and her own life? And who does she want to become as an artist and a human being? And what difference does she want to make? Love this conversation. I'm so excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. show is sponsored by meditation app 10% happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. I know from sort of like a pretty early age, you were, I mean, clearly you're exposed to music. You come up in a, in a, in a musical family. I guess we should just sort of throw that out there, get the pedigree out of the way, <laughs> right? So um, grandfather, I guess, I, really is where a lot of it started. Is that fair to say? In terms of like the professional musicians, I yeah. would say so. It, it seems like even he growing up, he, his father was a preacher. And so I'm assuming that there was lots right. of church music happening in the house. Um, but as far as I know, my grandfather and his wife, my grandmother, were probably the first like professional musicians to kind of kick off the legacy of sto- of sorts. But uh, he w- he ended up being the first African-American signed to the Met. So that's, you know, not insignificant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's pretty huge. So for those who aren't sort of like uh, familiar with New York, the Metropolitan Opera mm-hmm. is this legendary sort of institution. Yeah. Um, how did he end up, because um, he, he grew up in Arkansas? Yes. yes. How does he end up in New York? You know, I'm not quite sure what led him to New York. Yeah. I know that he was at Fisk for college. Got it. Uh, and I believe he and my grandmother met in D.C., if I'm not mistaken. She went to Howard. But I'm actually not sure as to how they ended up in New York because my dad and his sister were both born here in Manhattan. Um, but I'm not sure what led them here in the first place. Yeah. Do you recall him? Did you have a relationship with him or was he gone? Not much. Yeah. Um, he and my grandmother divorced when my dad was in high school, I oh, want to say. It. And I, he and my dad kind of had like an on and off relationship of sorts. And so I only interacted with him a handful of times before he passed when I was in high school. But I was 
you know, I talked to him on his birthday and like yeah. that kind of thing, but we weren't, we weren't super close. Right. So that, that was your grandfather. And then your dad, mm-hmm. um, Bobby McFerrin has been this, you know, like a legendary voice, uh, in the world of music for solid 50 plus years, probably at this point. <laughs> uh, I mean, let's see. He, he decided he wanted to be a singer for real, like just folk, cause he was a pianist first that he wanted to be a singer when he was 27 and he's oh, so he started like kind of later in Yeah, I mean, he life. was singing, like he would play piano bars and like sing and play at the same time, no. but he decided to solely focus on music when he was 27. So that was, uh, that was 77. Right. So we've, what, we're, we're, it's a few years since then, 40, years. 42 years or something like that. So 27 was kind of like when he went all in, um, that's right around the age you are now. Also, That's right? exactly the age I am right now. Does, do you ever reflect on that? A lot. Yeah. <laughs> I reflect on that a lot, actually. It gives me a lot of comfort just to know that somebody of his stature, granted, granted, even though he had decided to become a singer at 27, this is a guy who was like a literal prodigy at the piano. Like he went to Juilliard when he was six or something like that. For, oh, wow. Yeah, they had like a, <laughs> they had a school program that he got into when he was in kindergarten. So it's not as if his ear hadn't been developed prior to that happening. And when you have a professional opera singer as a father yeah. and a voice teacher as a mother and, you know, you're raised around that environment, it's not as if he just like started from the bottom of vocalese, you know, <laughs> it's just like that he had a very solid foundation. Uh, but just to know that he, you know, really was this, he, he developed his own style that was unlike what other people had heard. Um, you can't really go back and say like, oh, Bobby McFerrin sounds like this other right. singer. You know, like you can say that he sounds like other instruments kind of, but you can't mm-hmm. really say that like he, it, oh, I hear the influence of this singer like so strongly in him because like he really developed his own thing. So the fact that he was 27 when he decided to go on that journey is very much like, oh, if you really like put in the work, it doesn't really matter at what age you start. It doesn't, I don't have to have been five and, you know, working on improv for my whole life in order to become a a legend. Yeah. And it's almost like at the same time, um, I'm, I'm fascinated with people who, who in some way are exposed to certain worlds, but never sort of like step into it in a really full immersive way until mm-hmm. later in life. I've seen so many people in fine arts and performing arts do that where they were almost working. I mean, like your dad was, yes, he was involved in the world of music. I've seen so many other people, they're school teachers or they're in some totally right. different career. And they've always had this musical or artistic or painterly ear or eye um, but kind of assume, well, you know, like that path wasn't for them and something happens like mm-hmm. in the middle of their lives and like, you know, maybe it is. And the career and they blossom into these just profoundly impactful artists. Yeah, totally. And I think my dad has said that he didn't w- want to be a singer, at, you know, out of rebellion in a way yeah. because oh, both his, his dad, parents right. were vocalists and oh, like didn't want to do that. And then, you know, he just caught the bug. And I think it's also similar to my oldest brother, Taylor. He's a producer and he just released an album and it's the first time that he's singing on the whole album. And he similarly was like not trying to sing because of our dad. (laughs) So, you know, these things just kind of evolve in whatever way they want to. Right. So, so how does that manifest in you then? Because if like there's the same resistance, I mean, and and every kid to a certain extent, you know, resists their parents. Totally. Does that show up in you in a similar way or not? Yeah. I never had a hesitation towards singing itself. And I think also because I, I might, it might be because of the fact that growing up, I'm the youngest uh, by my oldest brother is 10 and a half years older than me. And our yeah. middle brother is six and a half years older than me. So I was like, I, I came after the don't worry fame and like all of that stuff. Yeah. And so my dad was a, around a lot more for my childhood than he was with my older brothers. He was on the road a lot when they were kids. And I think because of that, that also meant that he and I got to sing together more. And so I think the fact that I had a different relationship with him and singing growing up as a kid, there wasn't, for me, it was like, oh, this is fun. Like just because we were playing all the time, like that was a a source of fun for the two of us. And it 
it wasn't really until later in life that I had more hesitation towards not as much singing, but improv and scatting and that kind of thing. Like a lot of people assume that like, that's my bread and butter. And I'm like, nah, like that, yeah. that's more so of like where I, I draw a line and I guess my resistance more so comes from the fact that like I write words more than he does, you know, but it definitely is a, it's very much a looming thing, you know, like I, it, it's hard when you grow up and you, you don't really have a full understanding of the impact that your one of your parents has on the world, you know, like that's, that's something that is kind of hard to grasp, especially when it's not like he's so famous that everywhere we went, he was getting stopped. And I guess it was different in the height, but like I wasn't around for that. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, I wasn't aware of just how influential he was. And so it, what, I didn't really let it intimidate me until all of a sudden I'm in college and everybody's like freaking out. And I'm like, wait, what, <laughs> what does this mean? So it was really college when mm -hmm. that's, when the sort of the realization of who your dad was, not to you, but really to other people landed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's got to have been kind of weird. <laughs> it, oh, so weird. And especially just from the standpoint of, I didn't know that so many people in my peer group were aware of him and like idolized him. That was something that I had attributed more to people in my parents' generation. Oh, that's interesting. So I was, I was far more aware that people around their age group knew who he was, but I was rarely around people my age who knew he, who he was beyond Don't Worry. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, he had this one song that some of us weren't even alive for, and I hear it in pop culture references all the time, but all of a sudden I'm with these people who are my peers and they're coming up to me being like, your dad is my biggest idol. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with, with that. <laughs> you know? you're like uh or just like thank you right exactly or just like freaking out that he's helping me move into my dorm room you uh, know and it's like what am i supposed to do with this am i just supposed to kind of am i supposed to own that am i supposed to shy away from it am i and especially as a college student i knew that i wanted to sing i didn't know in what capacity because when i was in kindergarten i wanted to be a pop star and by the time i got to college i knew that that's not what i wanted and i like hadn't really written a lot of music. And so then to all of a sudden, like have all of these expectations in a way that I was like, whoa, hmm. you know, it was, it was, it was odd. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. I mean, how, how kind of like interesting and weird for you sort of like dawn on that. It's like, you know, your dad is this guy, you know, he's talented, you know, he's been singing and other people, but cause I guess, don't worry, came out what late eighties. 88. Right? Yeah, right. So, and like you said, so a lot of your peers, when you hit college, weren't even born. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Um, but you also, I mean, you also surrounded yourself with a different set of peers. You ended up at Berkeley Music School, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So everybody there was already steeped in this world. Right. So this is not sort of like the general public who's your age. Too. Right, exactly. And I think that that was also a different environment because I, that was the first time that I really w had been put in that kind of environment. I went to a Quaker private school growing up oh, no, that, yeah, you know, no. it's like, there obviously there were musicians, but it's not, I didn't go to a music school, you know, and I didn't do a lot of specialized music stuff. I went to a performing arts camp for a couple of years and that was a taste of it, you know, but, it, and I went to a, Berkeley has a summer program that I did the summer before my senior year of high school. But being at Berkeley was the first time that I was like fully immersed in, we are all musicians. Like this is music all the time, you know? So that was, that was yeah. very much a new experience for I me. I mean, what was that like for, for going into Berkeley? Did you know at that point already? You're like, okay, so I don't know what it's going to look like, but like this, my thing is singing mm -hmm. or, or were you undecided? No, I, I, okay. I had known that since I was five. What happened when you were five? <laughs> I don't know. I just like that. It was a thing where I, you know, people are like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And before that, it was like a tightrope walker. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think I just was like, okay, my dad sings. He seems to have fun. That's clearly a career you can have. Even before I understood what a career really was. But I was like, I like singing. I think I could do this. So uh, I pretty much made that decision and never entertained any other options. Yeah. Any other options that I entertained had to do with singing, but was like another form of it. 
Yeah, so interesting. It, interesting too, right? Because you mentioned, you know, like, you've got two older brothers, six and a half and 10 years older than you. So part of their experience, I guess, would be, would have been music to a certain extent also taking their dad away from them from windows of time. Right, yeah. Whereas that wasn't part of your experience. So you have this totally different relationship. Well, it was because he was still gone a lot. Okay. But I, from what I hear, like, he was, my mom was essentially a single mom, mm. uh, particularly with my older brothers, because that's before Don't Worry really hit off. And, you know, he was trying to an, establish a career and he was on the road for months at a time uh, versus with me, you know, he was gone still a decent amount. But my two best friends one of them, her mom was a businesswoman who was on the road all the time. And another one, her dad was a business consultant who was on the road all the time. So that was just kind of my reference right. point. For you, it's not a big... Right. It didn't It didn't seem yeah. like anything out of the ordinary that he was gone because my two best girlfriends that I was hanging out with all the time in kindergarten, their parents are not, they're not musicians, but they're gone. Right. So it wasn't something that I thought was weird or strange by any means. Yeah, it's just, it was for a different reason. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I was like, oh, a parent is just not home a lot. That's yeah. normal. <laughs> right. So here is a little message from one of our team members, Lindsay. Hi, Jonathan. I got my box from Stitch Fix Kids, and honestly, Enzo's looking so fly. You know, I'm not big on styling myself, so he sort of suffered in the style department. But with the clothes from Stitch Fix Kids, he looks really cute. I got the first order, and I didn't have to send anything back. It all worked, and Enzo really loved getting mail and opening the box. He especially loved the shoes and put them on immediately. Really, it was so easy. I took the style profile quiz, and an expert personal stylist sent us a hand-picked box of items based on his style and preferences. Plus, there's no subscription required. You can pick between automatic shipments or only get new pieces on demand. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. I love that Stitch Fix Kids is a sponsor. We'll slack you some pics. He's so cute. So get started today at stitchfix.com slash kids slash good life to try Stitch Fix and get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. And as a bonus, Stitch Fix will waive the $20 styling fee when you use this show's special URL. That's stitchfix.com slash kids slash good life stitchfix.com slash kids slash good life, or just click the link in the show notes now. So my drink of choice lately has been LaCroix sparkling water. You've probably heard me talk about it before, mostly because I like the way it tastes. And there are so many flavors to choose from. Your taste buds kind of always stay happy. So when they actually came to us first as a sponsor, and I found out that LaCroix sparkling water, which is pronounced LaCroix, by the way, was actually developed to give health conscious consumers refreshment, flavor, and sparkle with an innocent twist of zero calories, zero sweeteners, and zero sodium, I was pretty psyched. And LaCroix's 25 flavors are confirmed to be derived from natural sources with natural fruit essences. And that makes me pretty happy too. And their newest flavor is actually hibiscus, kind of a crisp, refreshing one, just like some of their other flavors like uh, key lime and tangerine, mango, apricot, passion fruit, peach, pear, coconut, lemon, lime, berry, cran, raspberry, orange, and grapefruit and pure. There's just so much to choose from. I happen to be a fan of the cran raspberry of late. LaCroix sparkling waters and LaCroix curate sparkling waters are gluten-free, vegan, kosher, and non-GMO, whole 30 approved and environmentally friendly. LaCroix cans are perpetually sustainable and recyclable. For more information, join the LaCroix community on social at at LaCroix water or visit LaCroixWater.com. So you end up at Berkeley. Um, and w when you get there, is is it what you thought it would be? No. How so? I mean, what did you think and then how is it not? I guess yes and no, because I did do the summer program. And so I had a, an understanding of, because what the summer program was, was essentially like a pre- cursor to right, right. college, you kind of get an understanding of what Berkeley looks like and sounds like and how they operate and stuff. So I had a baseline understanding. I like to say that like at 18, I, I don't think I could have gone anywhere else because I was so 
desperate for a musical environment mm. in a way that I hadn't thought that I had at my school. But then it ended up being the case that, you know, in my first year and a half in college, I had actually been singing more on a daily basis in high school, oh, no just kidding. by the way that things are structured at Berkeley. So I was kind of like, wait a second, what's happening here, <laughs> you know? Uh, but it was, it, it's an interesting place because it made me understand or have a better understanding that like, while I have only wanted to be a musician my entire life, there are other things about the world that I'm interested in mm. and interested in learning and the oversaturation of music kind of did a disservice for the other things that I was interested in learning about. And like, there's kind of this stigma around if you graduate, which I did, first of all, only I think the graduation rate is like 53%. Oh, wow. And it's because you either very quickly realize that you don't want to be a musician Got in it. this way because it's it's music all the time right. you know it's like you're learning theory and like all of these other things that it it becomes a lot for some people right. and it's so specialized i guess if you realize that there's not you can't like switch to poli sci right exactly or whatever. Yeah. exactly right, right. um so it's either you realize you don't want to do that and you drop out or you get picked up for a gig uh, and you get on the road. Got it. And so there's kind of this stigma around graduating because if you graduate, that means that you didn't get picked up for a gig. Oh, wow. And you get considered an alum after completing one semester because of this. Huh. So I think John Mayer only completed like one or two semesters uh -huh. or something like that. But it's like, if you get picked up, like it doesn't even matter if you only were there for one month because- like you, they still get to stamp right. their name on you, you know? Um, so they have a rating system that you get rated on like your, I forget what all of the categories are, but it'll, depending on your rating, it allows you to enter certain classes or certain ensembles and you can audition every year to change your rating I never did. I like stuck with my rating and was like, whatever. Um, and it's kind of this thing where it's like, if you really want to be in like this top thing, like you always have to, to push yourself to get to that point, which, and there's also this, this lingering vibe among some people, which I think it's probably waning now or cause like it started as a jazz school right. and now it's not just jazz, right. but there are some hardcore jazz people that are like, jazz is the only music. And if you are not good at jazz, then you suck at music period, you know? So it's yeah. like, there's kind of that crowd that's like trying to make it known that like, it's the only way to do it. And that there's, there are some teachers that do that, but I would say it's mostly students that are that are oh, kind so of like pushing that vibe. It's more like a grassroots thing happening, yeah. N not even grassroots as much as it is just like these are all like serious jazz heads that right. came into school. Like I have perfect pitch, and like I already know all of this theory and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, congratulations. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a it's a different kind of perfectionism, right. you know. So for you walking into that culture, coming from the family you come from, um, the moment people know who you are, it must have been even like weirder than I thought it was, or like yeah. a sense of pressure or almost like expectations from your peers about what you were, would, would be capable of. Yeah. My first semester, I was in the lobby of my dorm and somebody walked up to me and put out their hand. And was just like, I believe greatness flows, and then walked away. Oh man! And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> or just the amount of times that like people would ask me how my dad was before they would ask me how I was, yeah, type yeah. of thing. It's like I'm standing here in front right. of you, right? And I, I was in this class with, unfortunately, the professor recently died, but it was a, it was a poetry class, and it was one of the more honest classes I was able to be in where like that was the encouragement behind it was like we're trying to make this a more open space and there was one time when I posed the question of 
how many of you guys knew who I was before I even like walked into this classroom or like we've never even spoken before. And over half the class raised their hand. I wasn't allowed to like be the anonymous college kid that's right. trying to figure out their life. Yeah. I mean, also, I, it, that's, it's so, that's gotta be so hard also because I mean, you know, the way we figure things out is by like trying a whole bunch of things, which right. means part of that process is we're not good at a whole bunch of things. Right. Like, and, and, and some, like, if you're relatively anonymous, you can do that kind of publicly because yeah. everybody else is doing it. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you're, you show up already a known entity under the weight of expectation, it just, like, I, I would imagine the way you experienced that was, it was a, a lot of heaviness. It was yeah. a lot of pressure. I mean, a lot of people just expected that I already knew. Yeah like counterpoint and I already knew theory and I already knew all of these things, but it's like, I was starting at the first classes with everybody else, yeah. you know? And so it was just, there, there wasn't as much room for error. It felt like, but at the same time, it's like, you just want to hide and have plenty of room for error yeah. <laughs> just as a human, not even as a musician, you know? Right. Um, Cause you're just figuring out, I mean, at that point you're figuring out who you are just as a person. Totally. <laughs> I'm still figuring out who I am as a person. <laughs> It goes on for a long, long time. I've met very few people who have like got that dialed in mm -hmm. no matter what age they are. Um, while you're there, I mean, what are you starting to get? You also mentioned that there were things that you realized that you actually did care about mm -hmm. that were kind of pushed out of the way. Yeah. Curious what those things are. Well, just like an understanding of other things that happen in life. You know, it's like I was fortunate to be raised with a very great education, which is a source of privilege that unfortunately most people aren't afforded in this country. And I would try to, you know, you get inundated with music all the time and I would try and have conversations with pe people about other things. And these could be like the most proficient musicians and they didn't know how to talk about anything else or just feeling like I wasn't being pushed academically in a way where, I mean, there was one class that I think had to do with the history of the American music recording industry or something like that. And at the, and it was my senior year. And at the end, the last class, I went up to my teacher and I was like, thank you for giving me what felt like a real college mm. class, you know, or I, there was one class that was Mesoamerican art and architecture where they had a Mesoamerican architect teaching the class. And I was like, this is really cool, you know, or just like learning about different parts of history. And I actually, I didn't realize until later that it was like, oh, I actually liked being pushed intellectually in these other ways. And I think that that would have also helped my music classes because I would have gotten a break, you know, mm. like I went into college listening to music all the time. And by the time I left college, it was like, I needed a breather Yeah, because when music became homework every day, all the time, it was like, Oh my God, like, I don't want to listen to music right now. Yeah. I, I was really curious about that actually. Right. Because so many times you see this in people with professions, right. When there's something you love to do and you do it on the side as often as you can. Then something happens and you get an opportunity to make it your full-time thing. And then once it becomes your full-time thing and like, that's all you do all day, every day, you almost start to resent the fact that like, that is now your thing. Right. Exactly. So did, did it get to a point ever where you, you questioned whether this was, this was the thing that you want to really devote yourself to? Um, not really. But I don't know if that was just because I was like, okay, I decided I was going to do this when I was five. I don't really <laughs> right. have, it's like, I don't know what else I'm supposed to do with yeah. my life. Um, so not as much that I, if anything, I just questioned my choice of, of institution. Yeah. Um, so when you, while you're in Berkeley, what's happening to, to you as sort of just developing as, as a human being and as, um, as a musician, I mean, where, where, where's that taking you? Well, I will say, I think the best part of Berkeley is the network that you develop mm. and not just from like a professional standpoint, but it's like, I made some really great friends and we got to grow up as musicians together. And so the majority of my music, what I feel like was my music education during my time at Berkeley came from the fact that I my sophomore year 
or I guess, no, my second semester of my freshman year started a band with a couple of my friends who we were already friends and all of us just happened to play different instruments. (laughs) (laughs) We ended up starting this band and we played together a lot. And so for my sophomore, junior, and then like first half of my senior year of college, we were, we played a lot of shows and we like had a booking agent and we were coming to New York and we were playing a lot of these like random mountain ski lodge gigs with like nobody there, but they paid decent money, but it was, it, we were shedding, you know, it was just like yeah. a lot, a lot of practice. And up until that point, I had been pretty nervous. Like I did my state, I had a decent amount of stage fright and it, helped me get rid of a lot of that. It helped me get rid of most of it. I still have a little bit of it in certain scenarios, but it really helped me understand like how to command a stage and how to be present with other people on stage. And it was a, that was like my biggest learning opportunity. And then starting in the second half of my junior year through my senior year. And then for a couple of years post-college, I ended up joining my dad's band as a background vocalist. And so then I was like touring the world. And a cool thing about Berkeley is you can use that as a credit. So I like wrote that off as a credit. I just had to like make a presentation about it at the end of the semester or whatever. So that was a also a huge learning experience of just like what it means to be a legit touring musician. Mm. Um, and so those were the biggest elements for me of being able to ground the foundation of the musician that I am now and just having a better understanding of, you know, I have no problem talking to a sound guy or something, or like, I, I know right. what I'm, and I know what I'm talking about, you know, like, I'm not just like somebody off the street who like hasn't had these experiences. And I think a lot of people don't, I mean, maybe now they do, but definitely in the beginning of my solo career, people didn't think that I really knew what I was talking about or that I think they discredited the amount of experience that I've had in the field where it was like, no, like you're going to listen to me because I actually know what I'm talking about. So (laughs) don't discredit me. (laughs) Right. Um, The idea of of, um, performing and practicing over and over on any stage you can get, even if there's five people there, almost like as a form of exposure therapy. Mm -hmm, Totally. I think it's really fascinating. Yeah. It's like part of it is, yes, you're, you're, you're getting the craft, you know, it's like every time you do it, you're learning it better, but- I know so many people who are who perform in some way, shape, or form for a living and have for years and still feel that when they step on stage. You know, and it's gotten a lot better after they've done it hundreds or thousands of times. Mm-hmm. But it's still there yeah. on some level. My dad says uh it's not about having the butterflies in your stomach, but getting them to fly in formation. Mm. So that's what I try and focus on. Yeah, I like that. It's almost like if you don't feel them, is or is something wrong where you just no longer you're so uninvested at that right, point. Right? Yeah, maybe. Or it's mm-hmm. almost like it's a signal that you care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you're touring, uh, you're sort of singing back up with your dad at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Was that the first time that you had that you had done that with him in in a professional of, setting? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, how how was that experience for you? It was great. I had yeah. a really fun time. It came about because he came out with a uh, album of spirituals called Spirit You All. And at the time I was studying abroad in Spain for my second semester of my junior year. And the first gig that he had with the new band was in London. And Esperanza Spalding plays bass and sings backgrounds on the album. He's incredible also. Right. I mean, <laughs> and also a Berkeley yeah. alum. And she was, that was going to be the only show that she could do. Mm. And she dropped, she had to drop out for some reason. And my mom, being the incredibly smart woman that she is, when my dad was trying to figure out what to do, she was like, well, your daughter is in Europe right now. Like, just have her come to London and like sing with you guys. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's actually a good idea. So they, I think like a week or two before it happened, they just sent me the music, and it was the first time that my dad was playing with this band, and it ended up being this really great dynamic. It was like this group of people that we all love each other, and we have a lot of fun, and my dad keeps saying, like, 
this it's like the best band he's ever had and all this stuff. And it was also great. So it was like, I got to travel with my dad and like spend a lot of time with him. And it was the first time that I had really gotten to see him in that dynamic because I never went on tour with him like as a kid or something. It, it was only the case where like, if he was going to be in a city for a particular number of days and like, we could all go and that would only be if there wasn't school and like that kind of thing. Right. So I was never like on the road with him. And, and even then it was like, as a, as a bunch of, watching or enjoying him rather than being, right, like exactly. collaborating with him. Right. Yeah. Like I wasn't going to sound check and yeah. like all these other things. And so that was really fun and exciting. And it also gave me a deeper understanding of who he was as a person. Cause it would be this thing where, you know, he would be on the road for, three, four weeks, and then he'd come home and be kind of isolated and not want to go out and, like, not want to do things. And, you know, as his daughter, I, like, want to spend more time with him and all this stuff. And after our first, like, serious tour that I did with him, I was 22 at the time, and I got off the road and got home, and I was like, oh, I get it. You're just tired and, like, don't want to do anything because you're traveling, like, every day and for an extensive period of time, and, like, that does that takes a toll on your body. And so the fact that I was 22 and feeling those ways, I was like, oh, wow, this guy's been doing this for, like, 40 years. Of course, he doesn't want to, like, go out to dinner. <laughs> Yeah. I think he wants to like be home and just like chill. Yeah, like the empathy side kicks in at a yeah, whole totally. different level. Absolutely. So if I could turn back time to my very first day at my very first job, I'd probably tell myself to stop worrying about being perfect and just chill out and learn as much as I can. Well, unfortunately, I can't turn back time. But LinkedIn's new podcast, Hello Monday, with Jesse Hamble, is back for season two, and the show is full of advice you can start using today. So each week, Jesse sits down with featured guests to investigate the role work plays in our lives and how to make it work for us. So whether you're just starting your first job or gearing up for retirement, you'll be ready to tackle Monday and the rest of the work week with the knowledge to make work work for you. Find Hello Monday with Jesse Hempel on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. So after that experience, then you're coming out of Berkeley and then, it, you know, then the question becomes, okay, now what? Like right. now, yeah, totally. now we're stepping back into the real world. Like mm -hmm. I'm outside of this bubble. It, you know, the good, the bad, everything that it was, the amazing experiences. But when you step out into the world, you're like, okay, what is my contribution? What is my voice? Like, what, are, how do I, how do I actually make that step? Mm -hmm. How does that start to unfold for you? Well, I had about a year after college of continuing to tour with my dad. Okay. So that first year I was like still on the road and I was just happy to have graduated and right. have left. And I moved to New York five days after graduation. Hmm. I was like, get me out of Boston. Like I just like can't anymore. And so I felt good about that. But then it definitely turned into this thing where I don't, I think there was like a two year period where like I hadn't written a song and I was just very much, and I was sad about it. But at the same time, I, I felt burnt out. Mm. I, I felt very musically burnt out. And the band had broken up and that I that I had in college, right. Cosmodrome. And um, it was just this, I kind of felt back to that era of like starting college of being like, who am I? You know, like I still didn't know. Because when I was in the band in college, like it felt really right. And I think we just couldn't, we just couldn't work it out, you know, like too many different personalities, like not working together in the right way. We toyed with the idea of getting back together after college and it never, once again, didn't work out. <laughs> but it was really, you know, it, the solo career like blossomed out of necessity for not only my soul, but like to feel like I, I needed to prove myself mm. to myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was like, like I said, it was like, I decided to do this when I was five and like, what else was I going to do? Yeah. When you make that decision then to sort of step into your solo career, how do you decide coming from the background that you come from? How do you decide um, what that's going to look like for you? 
I'm still deciding. Yeah. I guess it's, <laughs> it's like an ever-evolving process. Yeah, totally. Right? Yeah. But it's like, so you had been in a band, you had, you had been with your dad. Mm -hmm. um, I'm guessing you had tons of other, like when you, when you step out into that world, um, cause you've done some really in the last couple of years, um, powerful stuff really on your own as a soloist. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious about the decision to step out more as a solo artist, um, than a collaborator. I know you're collaborating more these days, but for the first couple of years, it felt like it was really like, you almost placed a, like a flag in the sand and said, yeah. I need to kind of be me first. Mm -hmm. um, I think it stemmed from, you know, I'd done the band thing and I actually like did this like electronic hip hop duo thing for a second. And then I had this moment of like, when I actually decided that I wanted to do solo music that it, it felt so right in my body. Like I had this physical reaction of like, I think I got mm -hmm. goosebumps and like some other things that I was like, okay, I just got to do it, you know? But I knew that I just wanted to be by myself. Like I, I, I think it was, I think it was something where like, I really had to prove to myself that I, I could do it and not have anybody else to lean on or hide behind is probably a better way of putting it, a more mm -hmm. accurate way of putting it. And I, I really needed to push myself to be in a position where it was like, if something goes wrong, it's on you. Like, it's it, like I, it's not on these other people. If, you know, if you mess up in a song, you can't blame the bassist for, like, changing the key or, like, going to the wrong section of the song or whatever. It's like, I, I really needed that pressure because I don't think anybody else had really put that pressure on me before. Berkeley certainly didn't put that pressure on me Um my parents, as wonderful as they are, never really put that pressure on me. And so I had to, I had to do it for myself. And so I think that that was the only way that I was going to get around to, to doing it. Yeah. I mean, so that brings up a really, and what I'm sure was a really hard moment for you also, where you step out and you're like, everything that goes right is on me and everything that goes south is on me. Yeah. And you end up on a stage in 2016 at a political rally, mm -hmm. um, singing the national anthem. And like, like we've said, when you're trying to figure things out, you know, like you're, you're constantly trying new things and new settings and, and the benefit of, I think a lot of people who aren't in the world of public performing is that when things don't go right, it's not in- It's just in, you. <laughs> right. It's kind of like, okay, so I messed that up. What did I learn? How am I going to do things different moving right. forward? And for you, I mean- this unfolded in one moment in a very public way mm -hmm. that I, I would imagine from like living your life would have been really hard in that moment. It sucked. Yeah. Tell me, walk me through what happened. Well, see, that's the other thing is like at that moment when that happened, I had recently start decided to become a solo musician, right. but I hadn't done any shows. I had recorded some stuff that was like scratch. It wasn't even the the full thing. It was just like, here are some ideas. So I, I, I wasn't fully in the like, yes, I am a solo performer type thing. Right. You hadn't like publicly stepped out. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so I got this opportunity to sing the national anthem for Hillary Clinton when she won the Democratic nomination. And that just came about through a friend of my brother's. My brother called me and he was like, hey, my friend's going to call you about this thing. And I was like, okay, bet, whatever. And she called me and the, the event was two days later. And at the time I was nannying for work because I, the stuff with my dad had, had phased out more or less. And for those two days, I like strenuously re rehearsed the national anthem. And there was just a series of events that unfolded that I didn't have any control over. I was unable to go to sound check because I had work. And when I got to the Brooklyn Navy Yard where it was, people had already been waiting for about three hours. And I want to say it was like 5,000 people there or something like that. And then Hillary didn't show up for another three hours because they were still trying to determine that like she had in fact won the nomination. And I think there were also some security issues or whatever. And so that all happened in the room is like really ripe with anticipation for this historic moment. And when they called me up on stage, they didn't introduce me to the audience. So when I started singing the national anthem, the audience started singing the national anthem with me. 
So it wasn't the moment of like, it wasn't the moment that I had rehearsed for at all. Like I had that scenario had not entered my brain in any way, shape or form. I had not prepared myself for what happens if the audience starts singing this with you. So the audience started singing with me and I got thrown off. And so I just invited the audience to continue to sing with me. You know, like what am I supposed to do in that moment? Tell the audience to stop singing the national anthem that just felt unpatriotic. And I definitely didn't have the balls to do that. (laughs) And it was on national television and you can't hear a single other person singing. You just hear me with my microphone singing a version of the national anthem that I had not rehearsed, singing with a crowd of people that you cannot hear in the playback. (laughs) And I, and unfortunately the thing that sucks about it is like, it was a really joyous moment. And like, we were all like really happy. And I like invited them to continue singing with me because I wasn't going to tell them to stop. But because of that, it's like if you are to isolate a single person in a room of people singing happy birthday, like they probably don't sound great, you know, like unless they're just like doing their own version, like putting their stake in the ground of like, no, you guys are going to I'm going to sing this song this way, which I probably could have done in some way, but I, I, I didn't know how to. And so then when I got off stage, my phone had blown up with Twitter just like telling me that I had ruined my opportunity and I couldn't sing and like Snoop Dogg made fun of me and I was on the shade room and I got hit with this onslaught of hate that was really, it was really troubling. And it just so happened that like the, a few days before this happened, I had been in my therapist's office and I had cried in front of my therapist for the first time saying Mm. like, I don't think I can sing. Like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Like, I'm just so lost and confused. And then, you know, fast forward four days and here's what felt like the entire world telling me. Right. Like, oh, yeah, maybe you're right. Right. Exactly. Right. Uh, So uh. it was it was really it really sucked. But it was actually the thing that pushed me to be like, you know what? I did not go through all of this time with this dream just to have you guys tell me that I'm wrong. And so I booked my first solo show after that and was like, I know that I can do this. I'd been performing, I'd performed all around the world. And you guys caught me on my bad day on live television. I'm sorry Mm -hmm. that you don't know about all of these other factors that went into it, you know? And so it was one of those things where it was like, am I about to let this be the moment where like I have to change my whole trajectory of my life for the worse? (laughs) And I wasn't about to let that happen. I'm too stubborn. Yeah. I can't even imagine what that, must have been like. Um, it sucked. I do not recommend getting trolled on the yeah. internet. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but what, what blows me away though is that really soon after you like basically said, no, 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 no. Like, yes, this is awful. But, and four days later, you know, like unbeknownst to anybody else, you were letting your therapist know that you were really questioning whether this was your path. And like mm-hmm. now you have this massive public voice piling on saying, well, maybe it's not. Right. And your response to that was not to sort of vanish and say, you know, like, well, maybe they're all right. And maybe that voice in me is right. But no, like there was something deep down inside of you that said, no, no, this is why I'm here. Like, this is the thing that I want to do. Mm-hmm. And and rather than hide, like, I'm going to step out publicly as soon as I can. Right. I didn't really see another choice. Yeah. It was, I read this book around that time after that had happened called Daring Greatly by- yeah, Brene Brown. Right. Yeah. And there was a- a line in it that I don't exactly remember the wording, but it was like, you get to decide how the story ends. Mm. And so I wasn't about to let those people tell me how my story ended. You know, I was like, okay, this is, this is what I want to do. And it was totally unintentional. I hadn't even thought about the fact that like me ending up doing acapella music was even more of like an F you because it was like, okay, you think I can't sing, but here's me just using my voice. Right. Which is what you did. So your next move is you step out and you're like, okay, I'm not going to rely on anything but my voice. <laughs> well, that wasn't the f- the initial step. Okay. Before the Hillary Clinton thing had happened, I'd written like an album that I cut down to five songs. And for my first show, I had, a, I had this loop pedal and I hadn't really been using it much. And I had a synthesizer. And so I, the first half of the show was me with the loop pedal and the synthesizer. And like, I can't remember if it was one or two acapella songs. And then the second half, I actually brought my old band up and we did the songs that I had written on this album. But I knew 
I don't know what it was. I guess maybe seeing my dad and my brother, I knew that I only wanted to be on stage by myself. But I don't feel as confident as, as I would like to playing the piano and singing songs at the same time for that to be my thing. And that's how I'd written these songs on the album. And so out of necessity, I was like, okay, I'll just do these songs with the loop pedal and my synthesizer. And I ha- I wrote a couple acapella tunes with the loop pedal. And as I was doing more and more gigs in New York, I would get these shorter gigs that were like 20 minutes. And it was a thing where it was like, okay, well, I don't want to bring my synthesizer just for one song, you know? So it was like, okay, I'll just, I'll bring my loop. I'll, I always brought the loop pedal. That's, that's the only thing I had. I was like, I'll just do the acapella songs so that I don't have to bring this other piece of equipment with me for a total of three songs. You know, it's like, I have three acapella songs. I'll just do the acapella songs. And so I, after doing that more and more, like that became a much more niche thing that people were into. And I also was, I felt like my acapella songs were actually stronger than the ones that I'd written with the synthesizer. Mm. And so it just became a thing. Like it wasn't in any, like there was no part of me doing the solo thing that had the intention of being an acapella vocalist. Right. It, it was, was almost just, like a convenience thing. Yeah. It was, <laughs> like, it was totally a convenience yeah, thing. That's so funny. And then I put out the, first volume of finding foundations simply because I was like, okay, I have this other project that I wrote and I want to get some buzz beforehand. And I like these acapella songs that I wrote. Yeah. You also then come out in, in, um, 2017 with a song called, can you see? Um, yeah. Which is interesting, right? Because that's sort of like looping acapella. And then at the end you decide to add in something. Mm -hmm. National anthems in it. (laughs) Right. Was that in, was that in response to what happened or was that, I mean, obviously it was also in the context of the song, mm-hmm. um, but I'm curious whether that was almost like a shout back to what happened in some way or, or not No, really. not really. Yeah. Like people assume that it is. Right. I wrote the song Shine about what happened yeah. with the national anthem. So that was kind of my like, that's what this song is about. Right. But it was really something where it just felt right in that moment. When I wrote Can You See, I, I wrote that song like in a day very shortly like it was something that just kind of flowed out pretty easily and when i put the national anthem in it it was kind of just like it works for the context of the song and i didn't really think too much about it especially because it's like i changed the words and it's not exactly the melody right you know it's a little bit different because i remember when that came out um i remember seeing some of the comments around it and and i remember seeing some people asking in the comments something like i'm not going to get it exactly right but like w- was this the way that you meant to sing it mm. in 2016 mm. that like you couldn't sing or it for whatever reason it didn't work because people mm-hmm. were like this is incredible it was like really it was very different mm-hmm. um, and powerful. Thank you. So over the last couple of years, I mean, you you have done, um, so there's a volume two of Founding Foundations also, but it also feels like you're, you're now stepping it back into sort of like a more collaborative space. Mm-hmm. And part of that is with one of your brothers. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that, how that's unfolding. So like I said, like I had initially written another project, which wasn't, this particular project, but it's what this project has evolved into. And so again, was never my intention to do the acapella thing. (laughs) And so that just took off more than I was anticipating. And so now it's kind of like a reintroduction of what I've wanted to present people with, which actually funny enough, the intro to, to the next EP, it's called you and I, um, it's an acapella intro that's called, re like re colon intro (laughs) (laughs) um that's awesome but i yeah it was something that and the reason why it took a while to to get done is like i wanted my brother to produce the whole thing and he was working on his album and so i had to wait for him to get finished and so i was like okay i guess i'll just put out another volume of acapella stuff you know so Mm. it was like just kind of that thing but it's always been the case that I've wanted to have a more collaborative produced sound and hopefully people are still into it, you know, and don't think that I'm just supposed to be doing acapella stuff. Cause yeah. Is that a legit concern of yours? Right. Cause you always, you hear so often 
stay in your lane. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you personally hear that, but I know across so many, especially creative domains, people are like, okay, so you're kind of getting known for this thing and you're really good at it and you're getting traction with it. Mm -hmm. So just keep doing more of that. Right. Um, my sense is that does happen a lot in music totally. too. Mm -hmm. Is it, do you feel, did you feel any of that pressure? Yeah, I do, still do. Yeah. And I think it's more so from a thing of like, you know, I do what I do and I do it well and not anybody else is doing it in the same way that I am, mm. at least that I know of. I'm sure, I, I mean, I'm not like a, completely unique person because none of us are, <laughs> but uh, I have carved out a little like place for myself in this way. And honestly, the thing that I get most concerned about is like, okay, so I'm doing this acapella thing. Not many people else are doing it in this way. If I start having production, does that just make me like one of these other people? Does mm. it make me less unique? Yeah. Does it make my show have less magic? Right. Like those are the things that I'm more concerned about because there are so many ways that I want to express myself musically outside of acapella. And I'm, it just so happens that like I can hear harmony in my head better than I can play it on the piano. So it's mm. easier for me to sing it. So like it works out that way. Oh, that's so, so interesting. even when I write music, I'm sure that it, there's still going to be acapella elements to it. And the, thing that I rely heaviest on, even in the past, even before I was doing the acapella stuff, it's like, I love harmonies. Like I love vocal harmonies more than anything, period. And so that's always going to be a thing in my music, regardless, regardless if there's production or not. And so there, I'm hoping that people still hear that, that through line to be able to understand that I'm still me, you know, I think that there might be some like jazz heads that aren't as into it, but it's like, if you're not as into my stuff, like just because I added some, some extra stuff behind it, then, you know, okay, I'm sorry, but like, I have to be true to myself at the end of the day. Yeah. Do you have any concern now that you're sort of like stepping back into multi-instrument and different, different approach to production? You mentioned earlier, um, one of the powerful things, like the, the powerful things and scary things of kind of it being your voice and only your voice, even if it's looped and layered, is that there's nowhere to hide. Mm -hmm. When you start to bring a lot more back into it, does it concern you at all that there may be more places to hide at a moment when you're still, you know, like you've got so much work ahead of you um, and still so much experimentation to do and so much sort of like growth and development? Mm -mm. Yeah, totally. I think that's something that I have been able to get pretty good at with the acapella thing is like, I, I'm very good at harmonizing with myself mm. and I can stay on pitch with myself. And I'm not, it's not that I'm concerned about that with adding other elements, but that does bring in a lot more things for my ear to be paying attention to that. Like, am I going to be able to stay steady in the way that I've become comfortable with, mm. you know? are all of these other elements, is there a chance that they'll like throw me off in my pitch or just in my focus? You know, it's like I'm, my new setup is like with gear that I haven't gotten the chance to, you know, really play with in a public setting, you know, versus like I could do acapella loops in my sleep at this point, you know, it's like I can, I, I know that my show, like the back of my hand, like I, there's not much that, that goes into yeah. it that that throws me off. But now I have to be even more present in a way that I'm worried about if that level of presence is gonna throw me off, yeah. you know? And also, like you said, if you, if the, if your MO has always been that like, you hear what you want to express in your head, sometimes on a pure level, then you're actually able to express it either with your voice or with an instrument. When you start to add multiple instruments to that or multiple sounds, multiple melodies to that. And, and you're not necessarily the one playing them. Right. Um, but you know what, what your brain is saying it should sound like. Mm -hmm. That's like a whole nother level of yeah, complexity totally. and potentially frustration right. at the same time. It's like, Absolutely. no, not that. <laughs> like, how do you actually explain it? Like, can't you just listen to what's in my head? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so interesting. As you're sort of out playing right now, you, I know you've been touring a whole bunch. What's really exciting you sort of like about the moment that you're in right now with your work? 
I feel like right now there's so much energy happening on a global level of frustration and anxiety and not knowing what to do. Like that's not like an American only issue that we're having, you know? And like after 45 got elected, one of the silver linings that I instantly knew was going to be was the fact that like it was going to bring about a lot of really amazing art just like it did in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, I think that a lot of people really felt and still do feel a necessary push to express themselves in an artistic way. And I am very excited to be a musician in that moment. And hopefully me being a solo musician in the way that I have been and under the circumstances that I've had. um, You know, I have a lot of people who they come up to me letting me know how inspired they've been just by my story because we live in this society right now where me getting trolled is not an isolated incident, even though it happened on a national scale that a lot of people won't experience trolling is happening like on the internet in a way that like particularly for young teenagers and stuff that like they we don't even know how to control it and it's it's hard and it's tough and I allow myself to be really vulnerable on stage which I don't really know how not to be but that is a thing that has allowed people to see that like you can go through something publicly and actually bounce back and not let people bring you down in a way. And so I feel like my, not even just my music, but like me as a person, like I've been able to exemplify that in a way that I'm, I'm really happy about. And it's, it's not like it's something that I'm going after or that I sought out to be some like, let me be your like vulnerable (laughs) friend persona brand or whatever, you know, because that's not what I'm trying to do at all. Like, I'm really just being myself. And like, if being myself means that that inspires people to be themselves, like, I'm totally down for that. Like, Mm. I feel like we need a lot more encouragement. And there's so much, like, heavy energy that's kind of telling a lot of people to just sit down and shut up. And I I would love to be a part of of whatever movement it is that tells people the exact opposite, like stand up and fight. Yeah, love that. Thanks. <laughs> um, feels like a good place for us to start to come full circle also. So um, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life mm-hmm. in the context of this good life project container, what comes up? Hmm. I think to live a good life means to be true to yourself and to be true to true and good to the people around you. You know, I think there is something so simple and pure in what, like the golden rule of like treat your neighbor how you would want to be treated. We don't do enough of that right now. I think that if we were actually, that's what a good life is to me, you know, is like just being one with your community and having a deeper understanding of them and yourselves and the planet and, you know, freedom you know, real freedom, which most people don't get to experience, whether it's from a financial level or a physical level or a mental level. I think we're all struggling with some form of, you know, enslavement (laughs) in one way or another, whether it's via the man or via our brains. And I think living a good life means being free, free of that means Mm. freedom. Yeah. Mm. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E 
typ.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.